The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. Hello, and uh, welcome to EVRMA's fourth live online journal club. For those of you who have been at our previous events, welcome back. If it's your first time with us, welcome. We hope you, you really enjoy this journal club. In today's journal club, we're going to be discussing recurrent implantation failure. First, we're going to have an introduction by Richard Scott, followed by the presentation of two very interesting papers by Paul Cortea and Mauro Cozzolino. And then we will end with a discussion involving all of our panelists. As always, we're going to be taking questions from, from the audience, from you. So please send them in through the little Q&A button on the bottom of your screen, and we will address them during the, during the discussion as we go. As we do with all of our journal clubs, the video is also going to be on our website at ev-rmainnovation.com. Our first speaker is Dr. Scott, who is one of the co-founders of EVRMA Global, as well as professor at Thomas Jefferson University and Rutgers University, and the Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility Fellowship Director at RMA New Jersey. Dr. Scott, welcome. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. Uh, really appreciate the, the opportunity. I'm very excited. Uh, for today's podcast, uh, and uh, have an opportunity to listen to uh, the reviews of these presentation of these papers and the reviews by uh, a variety of experts for where they fit into our literature and how they how they're impacting our understanding of uh, patient care and management and, and our biology and the biology of the system. The current implantation failure has been an important topic in clinical reproductive endocrinology from the very beginnings of IVF. Uh, in the mid-1980s, when I began my reproductive endocrine fellowship, um, there was not a formal definition for recurrent implantation failure. And from a professional society standard, organizational standard, WHO, there's still no absolute standardized uh, definition. But the widely used definition in those days was four transfers of four embryos each. So if 16 embryos failed to, to implant and sustain development, that was considered a recurrent implantation failure. If someone had failed three transfers of four embryos and had 12 embryos failed, that was not recurrent implantation failure. And over time, um, uh, as we ask those questions, uh, the definition and the evaluation process has evolved. In the beginning, uh, even though we, we didn't really know that much about embryology and certainly things were not optimized, um, uh, everyone still looked to the endometrium. If you had a morphologically normal embryo and it didn't make a baby, it's got to be the doggone implantation process on the endometrial side. And so uh, Jairo Garcia, many others, uh, did endometrial biopsies and talked about endometrial advancement and endometrial delay uh, and timing, which, of course, the group at UNC has shown is probably not the, the most accurate way of doing things, but that, those studies, Murray study, had not been done. So uh, the reality is everyone kept looking to the endometrium. And yet, as, as the history has evolved, 
and the number of embryos that, that might be required to consider re recurrent implantation failure a factor has diminished. Uh, there, of, of course, most of the changes have been on the, the embryonic side. We're still fundamentally managing the endometrium we always have with estrogen and progesterone and uh, some basic understanding of the window of implantation, which hasn't changed that much since the votes or early work uh, in the early 1990s. And so um, uh, by the mid 1990s, people were talking about three transfers of three uh, in some manuscripts by the 2000s, uh, three transfers of two. Uh, and I think uh, now we have, uh, as things have improved, uh, as uh, we've gained insights from, from PGT, as we've gained insights from uh, understanding the, the window of implantation, the wave shifts from classic studies by Ernesto Bosch and, and Shapiro and, and others, many others. Uh, I think that it's a, an exciting time and now we can probably say that even failing three single embryo transfers, it really makes you an outlier and we have to be concerned uh, for this recurrent implantation failure diagnosis. Whether it should be modified if, if all the embryos are from just one cycle, for instance, not yet really studied or known, or whether or not um, that number holds up if it takes you three cycles to get there, or, or if you made eight blasts, but, there, but, but, but seven of them are, are aneuploid, are all factors which remain to, to be elucidated in greater detail. But today's papers, I think, are very exciting and, and move us forward uh, in this understanding, uh, which will ultimately end up with this recalcitrant group of patients. They're clearly there at some level. Prevalence is much lower than we used to think. Um, and uh, basically, Hopefully uh, this discussion today will lead us to a greater understanding of how to identify those patients, how do we evaluate them when we find them, and of course, what's the best way to treat them moving forward. So with that, I will, I will uh, turn over uh, the microphone and we can begin the program. I, I'm excited and look forward. Thank you, Dr. Scott. I think that perfectly sets the, the scene for our paper presentations. The first one is going to be presented by Dr. Paul Pertea from the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at Hôpital Foch in Paris, who worked as a research fellow at RMA New Jersey during his study. His is a study that has received a lot of attention since it was published, and it is titled Rate of Recurrent True Implant, oh, sorry, Rate of True Recurrent Implantation Failure is Low, Results of Three Successive Frozen Euclid Single Embryo Transfers. And it was published in Fertility and Sterility just a couple months ago in, in January. Dr. Pertea, go ahead. Hello to everyone. First of all, I would like to thank you. Uh, I'm extremely honored to have this opportunity to share with you uh, some of my work. Uh, and also I have been extremely lucky to have had the chance to work with Dr. Scott and his team. So all, my paper actually uh, originated in a discussion from, from Professor De Ziegler with Dr. Scott in Barcelona during a ESHA meeting, uh, where actually Dominic asked uh, Dr. Scott about uh, what happens after three euclid embryo transfers. So I, I prepared some slides uh, because maybe some data can be uh, extremely uh, complicated. Uh, so, uh, and uh, also I will present to you uh, all the authors that have participated uh, in this. Um, so I hope the slides are okay. So this is the title that the rate of true recurrent implantation failure uh, which we consider to be low. And actually we looked at the results of three successive frozen euploid single ember transfers. So uh, as you know, in uh, as Dr. Scott mentioned earlier, there is no true definition for recurrent implantation failure. We might think that with IVF, all embryo will 
that are transferred would actually uh, implant in the uterus. But you know, beyond the clinical and biological, the less than 100% outcomes of ART also stem from the inherent limitation of human reproduction. So logically, those natural limits of human reproduction apply to ART as well. And although, let's say, ART may slightly outperform natural conception, courtesy of multiple ovulation and various methods of embryo selection, it still remains limited by the inherent poor efficacy of human reproduction. So uh, several authors, starting in 2000 and up to 2014, have uh, well uh, hypothesized and showed that when implantation failure occurs repeatedly three times or more, the condition is known to be this implantation failure. So when we talk about potential causes, uh, it's, I think that uh, when we um, talk about, let's say, the morphological normal uterus, because in our study, we only took into consideration those patients with normal morphological uterus as uh, verified by ultrasound and hysteroscopy, implantation failure could result from factors that affect either embryo competence or endometrial functions. So numerous authors have claimed that the uh, functional alteration of the normal uterus in otherwise morphological, uh, um, uh, sorry, the normal endometrium in an otherwise morphological uterus can hamper the capacity to implant. So the range of functional alteration proposed for uh, explaining implantation failure include the window endometrial receptivity. Uh, then you have the, the endometriosis associated endometrial uh, impairments of receptivity linked to the BCL6 expression. And also you have all the immunological factors and ultimately the um, endometrial killer lymphocytes. But when we talk about um, um, live births in, let's say, uh, PGTA screen embryos. So PGTA allows for the transfer of, of normal chromosome, chromosomal uh, euploid embryos. And therefore PGTA excludes those embryos uh, with the genetic composition that are abnormal and thus prone to either not implant or cause miscarriage. So if you take live birth rates following euploid embryo transfer, the reported range goes from 43 to 77%. So you have great data uh, uh, reported by authors like Scott, Foreman, Capalbo, and Dahoud uh, showing this data. But yet, as you can see following um, uh, PGTA, not all euploid embryos implant. And this is where the question lies is what caused this implantation failure and possible recurrent implantation failure in particular. So then there's a theory that probably uh, uh, this could be uh, to a persistent uh, endometrial causes. And this is why we, in our study, try to determine the true prevalence of recurrent implantation failure in women undergoing three successive frozen euclid single embryo transfers. So we did this uh, with the help of Dr. Scott in a, a, a retrospective core study uh, uh, taking patients from 2006 to 2018. Uh, we did it in RMA, New Jersey. Uh, we had the PGTA platforms and we only used frozen single euploid embryo transfer. So in total, we had actually 4,429 4, patients. We excluded all egg donors, gestational carriers, monogenic disease, and all those patients with an endometrial thickness of less than seven millimeters. And we included uh, mostly uh, all those patients with a morphological normal uterus. So when you talk about results, uh, it's very important to say that uh, when we uh, actually uh, 
performed the first embryo transfer, we have seen that 69.9% of those patients obtain a pregnant implantation. So those pay, that those 30% of the patient that didn't uh, succeed, well, we have uh, 571 uh, patients who dropped out for you know, different reasons like uh, financial, emotional, uh, and so forth. And we had 519 patients who still had uh, remaining embryos and 245 patients who needed to do another ART treatment in order to obtain new euploid embryos. So those patients who performed a second embryo transfer, actually 59.8% obtained a new implantation. So with this in mind, we see that 40 still left with no success. We still in this population had patients who have dropped out, actually 176. And we had patients who still had remaining embryos and also patients who did new, a new ART treatment as, as shown here, 39 of those. So this patient, when they performed the third embryo transfer, 60.3% uh, of them obtained an implantation rate. Remaining only 52 patients, representing 39% uh, with no success. When we look at live birth, we can see that um, you have the same uh, kind of results, 64.8% for live birth after the first image transfer, 54.4% after the second one, and 54.1% after the, after the third one. So... This has uh, pushed us to see that if we would do uh, a cumulative implantation rate after the three, third embryo transfer, uh, single frozen euploid embryo transfer, 95.2% of those patients would have achieved an implantation. And if we look at uh, clinical uh, uh, live birth, we have 92.6% that had obtained uh, uh, a live birth, which was quite uh, impressive for us. So. Certainly, um, when we, um, you might say that the implantation rate decreased from 69.9% to 59.8% following the first failed implantation of a euclid embryo, this quite indicates that probably the failed implantation following those does not really select out women with an overt receptivity uh, disorder. And um, indeed, when we consider the first uh, uh, embryo transfer, and the second one, when we have around the data, we show that there was no real difference between them. So when we talk about miscarriage, it's very important to say that uh, the rate after positive fetal uh, cardiac activity was 7.2% after the first embryo transfer, uh, was 8.3% uh, after the second one, and 127 after the third one. So uh, when we compare the miscarriage results between uh, after the first, the second, and the third, no real significance was found or observed according to our logistic regression when it was adjusted for age, as the P shown here. So uh, certainly for discussions, uh, we might, with our data that we have obtained, we can say that women who fail to implant following a curse of frozen euploid single embryo transfer do not have a marked increased incidence of failing again to implant in the subsequent second and the third uh, frozen embryo transfer. So we can strongly say that uh, recurrent implantation rates following three successive uh, frozen nuclear single embryo transfer has an incidence of less than 5%. And this quite uh, um, put into question uh, the original, uh, actually the original cause, whether it's the embryo or the uterus, 
Uh, and our data suggests that implantation failure of uterine origin are rare when euploid embryos are transferred in women with a morphological normal uterus. Certainly, our study has some limitations as all retrospective studies. Uh, certainly, some successive frozen uh, euploid uh, single embryo transfer uh, came from different ART cycles. But when we have analyzed our data, we have uh, and we calculated the implantation rate of those two subgroups, those who had remaining embryos and those who had uh, performed a new ART treatment to obtain new embryos. We have seen that uh, there's, the results are similar. Actually, it's 59.2% for those using remaining embryos and 61.2% for those who use uh, embryos for new uh, ART. As uh, on the positive side, it's a very large size uh, cohort, uh, and, and certainly, um, as I said before, implantation rates are similar in those subgroups that have done uh, a new treatment. And I think that given that the large of our, our uh, cohort uh, we, and our results, we can, uh, being probably the largest report of sequential frozen euploid single member transfer, we can reliably call into question the role of the uterine factors in recurrent implantation failure. As conclusion, uh, our findings suggest that true endometrial uh, recurrent implantation failure is rare when euploid embryos are transferred. I think, so in patients who have euploid blastocysts, 95.2% achieve clinical pregnancy after three frozen euploid single member transfers. And I, we believe that implantation rates decline minimally with increasing transfers and uh, additional euploid embryo transfer offer hope for a good outcome. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Pratea. Um, what, a, what a contribution to, to the literature. Now, for our second paper, Dr. Mauro Cosolino is going to be presenting another very interesting publication on potential evaluation and management of recurrent implantation failure. Dr. Cosolino is a physician scientist at EV Foundation, and he's currently a visiting research scientist as well at Yale University. His paper is titled Evaluation of the Endometrial Receptivity Assay and the Pre-Implantation Genetic Test for Aneuploidy in Overcoming Recurrent Implantation Failure. And it was published in the Journal of Assisted Reproduction and Genetics in September of 2020. Dr. Cosolino, please go ahead. Thank you. First of all, I would like to thank the organizer for the opportunity to present our data to this journal club. It is an honor and pleasure for me. So um, as been introduced by Dr. Scott, recurrent implantation, um, so recurrent implantation failure is a still unsolved problem and is an important with clinical relevant entity. However, there is no consensus about the definition of uh, RAF. Um, many investigators use the number of good quality embryos transferred or the number of embryo transfer to define RAF. For example, Copeland et al. suggested at least four good quality embryos based on the morphological assessment in a minimum of three fresh or frozen embryo transfer in women, in, in women that are younger or 14 years old. So for sure, um, endometrium and embryo are the principal determinant of the implantation. Patient with the recurrent implantation failure could have an increased risk of um, aneuploidy 
And for this reason, um, PGTA should be considered in women with the RAF. On the other hand, endometrial receptivity is also important, and several studies have suggested the possibility that endometrial receptivity is alterated in patients with the RAF. So, IRA test has been proposed as being able to detect the temporal displacement of the windows of implantation. And for this reason, in the last years, the IRA test has been used in women with the RAF to determine the timing of uh, embryo transfer with the adjustment of um, progesterone administration. So the aim of, uh, was, of an, our study was to assess the effectiveness of PGTA and the IRA test in improving clinical outcomes in patients with recurrent implantation failure. This is a retrospective study. Our population was divided in two groups according to the number of embryos transferred. So the first group was moderate RAF with three or four embryo transferred, and the other group was severe RAF with five or more embryo transferred. In each group, we have four subgroups that were control, PGTA, IRA, and IRA plus PGTA. So the inclusion criteria were age between 18 45 years old, at least three pilot embryo transfer in frozen or fresh cycles, and transfer of a good quality embryo or blastocyst. Exclusion criteria were abnormal karyotype congenital or acquired thrombophilia, endocrine and metabolic disease, atrophic endometrium and submucosal myoma or polyps without previous surgical correction. So as we expected for the retrospective nature of our study, there were some statistical difference in the descriptive variables across the group. In the moderate RIF, Patients in the control group were younger than those in the other group, while in the severe RAF patient in the control group and in the era were older. Also, in a moderate RAF patient, the, the mean number of a previous fresh and frozen embryo transfer were lower in the control group, and similarly in severe. RAF, the mean number of a previous frozen embryo transferred was lower in the control group. So in total, in our study, we included 2,110 in the moderate RAF and 488 in severe RAF. So it's important that in severe RAF, due to the strict inclusion criteria, there were a lower number of embryo transfer in the PGTA group, only 72, and in IRA, only 35, and in IRA plus PGTA, only 6. As expected, the mean number of embryo available for embryo transfer was lower in the group of PGTA and IRA plus PGTA. And importantly, I want to highlight that the percentage of donor cycles was either in the control and the ERA group, both for moderate RAF and the severe RAF. 
Regarding the result of the, of the ERA test, as shown in the upper of the table, ERA test revealed no receptive result in 14% of patients with moderate RAF and 25% of severe RAF patients. This is consistent with previous data of the literature that report uh, the recurrence of non-receptive uh, to the ERA around 14-25%. While, as shown in the upper of the table, the percentage of ongoing pregnancy rate in the patient that received PGTA was 10 points higher in the moderate, RIF, moderate RAF compared to the other groups. While in um, out, the outcome of ongoing pregnancy rate was not different in a severe RAF. So the, um, the univariate analysis demonstrated clearly that patients who received PGTA had a better odds ratio for implantation rate um, for patient and transfer and ongoing pregnancy rate compared to the control group. While there, were, there was no difference for ERA and the ERA plus PGTA, in the severe RAF, there were statistically different across the groups. So considering that the retrospective nature of the study and the difference in any descriptive variables, we performed the multivariate analysis adjusting for possi possible confounder such as the proportion of embryo transfer that used donate oocyte, the day of um, embryo transfer, the number of embryo transferred, fresh or frozen embryo transfer, and the mean prior number of embryo transferred in the previous cycles. So, and again, the, um, the multivariate analysis demonstrates clearly that patients in, um, in the moderate RAF that received PGTA have a better implantation rate for transfer for patient and ongoing pregnancy rate compared to the control group. While there was no statistical difference for ERA and ERA um, plus uh, PGTA, in the severe RIF, there were um, any statistically significant difference across the group. So um, the, our study for sure had um, any limitation. And uh, the, the first one is the retrospective nature of the study. And the second one is the limited number of a transfer included in the severe RAF that make difficult the, um, the conclusion about this group. So in conclusion, PGTA is associated with improved outcomes in patients with uh, RAF and one and the, the current test to assess the endometrial receptivity gives no clinical benefit in women with RAF. Thank you. Thank you. That's um, a very, very interesting study, I think, on the on the role of PGTA and ERA for recurrent implantation failure. And I, I would like to move on to the discussion. And for that, I'm gonna hand it over to Dr. Juan Antonio García Velasco, who's the director of EV Madrid and a professor at the Rey Juan Carlos University. Dr. García Velasco, whenever you're ready. Thank you very much, Andres. It's a pleasure to be with you today and with this expert panel of, of uh, 
authors and researchers. And I think we're listening to a, a, amazing data that is going to help us uh, improve the care we provide to our patients. So before I introduce our discussions, I'd like to remind the audience, to please type in their questions. Uh, this could be directed at the presenters or they could be general questions for the panel. Um, we have with us uh, people that you all know, I'm sure. Uh, of course, Dr. Richard Scott, who's been doing the introduction and is co-author of, of Pirtia's paper, as well as um, Dr. Dominique de Sigler from Hospital, uh, Hospital Foch, Foch Hospital in, in Paris, uh, co-author of, of the Pirtia paper and, and extensive experience in IVF. We have also Dr. Steve Yang from the University of North Carolina, and uh, he's been doing research in the implantation area for uh, again, 20, 30 years, and, and also um, Dr. Nicolas Garrido from EV Foundation. So um, <clears throat> we, we have uh, quite a few questions from the audience, and, and uh, before we start, I'd like to ask you a question that I, I, I think it's, uh, involves all of you, and we can start going around, or as you wish, because I think the data that uh, Paul mentioned, Dr. Pritea showed is uh, really amazing. And we see that with three embryos, we can um, have a clear picture of, of what are the chances of our patients of having a baby. But do any of you think that we could do better than, than that in the first attempt? We, we see that we have a 60, 70% chances in the first embryo transferring. And if we continue, we can add up to this. But do you think there is any role for uh, uh, or any ideas that we could do better than that before we start. I'll just throw out a, a brief answer to that. I'm very interested in everyone else's impression, but the answer the answer has to be yes, one, uh, Dr. Garcia Velasco. Uh, we have to be able to do better, right? So clearly, uh, 40 or 45 percent of embryos, depending on which cycle and, and whatever, are not are not resulting in delivery, which means uh, either their embryo the endometrium is failing, which uh, we don't have as much evidence for, or, uh, and that really comes from the twin pregnancies where you get spontaneous reduction of one, not the other, so it's, which, which fails at about the same rate. Um, so quite frankly, we just, we just have to be able to, to, do, uh, to do a better job. So I think there's a lot of assessment of the embryo, far beyond just conventional whole chromosomal aneuploidy, uh, which is going to create a great deal of excitement in the next uh, um, one to ten years uh, as we resolve this, but uh, there's no question, no question that uh, many opportunities remain. Any other comments? I'm sure. Uh, thank you, Dr. Scott. I, I have to agree with Dr. Scott as usual. <clears throat> I think that it's not. Uh, we put an embryo in properly into the uterus. We shouldn't expect perhaps a hundred percent. But we ought to do better than 50% uh, implantation if we knew all the factors that were involved. I, I tend to think that, um, that we think of things in dichotomized ways. Uh, that is, is it the embryo or is it the mom? Uh, or in this case, mostly the endometrium, but there are probably other factors. Um, but but they probably uh, cooperate with each other. And that conversation between the embryo and the uterus might be very important for optimizing the first and second and third transfer. It's just that we don't understand it very well. Um, and, and when we look at, oh, we got 60% implantation rate, I, I would note it was much lower in, in, uh, in the other study, in, in Morrow's study, um, but, but we get 60% implantation rate 
some of that may be in bad endometrium or some of that may be in marginal embryos. Um, we do get loss rates, which trended up as we went on. And, and that has to be part of the continuum of implantation, whether it be good or bad. So those are my thoughts. Thank you, Tijan. <clears throat> I, I, I think this is the, the, what we have been seeing in the last uh, few years, that I think this is not a balance between the endometrium and the, and, and the embryo. I think it's an unbalanced equilibrium. I think that the embryo is weighting much more than the endometrium, and that's what it looks like. Um, there's some questions. Please go I ahead. make a comment. I think we are at the core uh, of our problems when we do IVF. Why? Does it not work all the time, as Richard said, even with the euploid embryos? And the core of the question, is it the egg or is it the chicken? In this case, the endometrium. Now, my reading of the information provided by Paul's paper in, in when he was with Rich is that uh, there does not seem to be women whose receptivity is lastingly uh, disturbed. Uh, there are no women who appear to not be responsive at one point. The transfer of euporate blastocyst and the failure of that does not select out women who have a problem. Now there are two caveats in that. The first one is that as Paul said, they selected endometrium that were morphologically normal. And they were probably pretty good at doing that with uh, hysteroscopy and, and, and uh, ultrasound. And the second caveat, which I think is important, is that we're talking about blastocyst transfer in estradiol and progesterone cycles. Because in this case, the ovaries are suppressed. And we probably correct some of the problems that exist, for example, in endometriosis. In endometriosis, if you shut down the ovaries, the disorders that have been described by Bruce Lacey and others are corrected. So, but in that context, what is fantastic, we don't have women who appear to have a lasting and persistent endometrial receptivity problem. And we could have thought of that when you come to think of it. Because when we've done donorag IVF, one who has done more than others is you, uh, Juanita. But when we've done donorag IVF, we realize that there is time in receptivity. If you're careful to avoid uh, fibroids and everything. And therefore, how could it be that some women would not be receptive and others would be, and that there would be no deterioration of this problem with age? A woman of 50 years old is just as receptive as a young one. So I think that the, the information that uh, Paul's paper is very, very, very dramatic. There is no uh, alteration of the endometrial changes that lead to receptivity. Uh, a lasting, uh, in a lasting form. It could be that in a random, random form, some women on one day are not receptive and they will be receptive next time. But there is no selection of women who don't, uh, were not receptive. So very, very good piece of information, very important paper. Congratulations to uh, Paul and Rich. So 
so Dr. Dezigo, I have to agree with you on most of that, but but uh, uh, Paul, your your paper shows, <laughs> but but pa Paul, your paper shows, you know, they had such a high dropout rate, right? And so we we could probably have a wider range of um, implantation that that wasn't captured. You know, I don't know why they dropped out. Um, but one assumes that some of them were very poor prognosis for one reason or another, and I would I wonder were there any um, were there any procedures was there any surgery was there any else anything else done between um, uh, cycles that might have improved things for the patients and then, and I think we also have to remember that the that that the receptivity dropped from first cycle with a uh, uh, with a euploid embryo to the second cycle. Perhaps it's just one euploid embryo now that that, uh, that helps us determine who's at best. Well, um, well, thank you for that question. Actually, uh, I think that our uh, study shows and reflects the image of a real IVF center where you have patients that drop out with sure. multiple reasons, and uh, and you know the 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 the. the, the price of care is very high these days and notably in ART. So probably in those patients that dropped out, you'll have a certain population with a poor prognosis, but probably you have also just normal patients we didn't have enough oocytes or the chance to have a euploid embryo because we can see that today that there are some patients that do, do not have euploid embryos and it, probably other IVF will bring, either IVF cycles will bring euploid embryos. So to regard with that, uh, as you see, some drop out, but some also need to perform a new IVF cycle. So this is why we looked at the data to see and the, the, those two subgroups of those who had euploid embryos, remaining euploid embryos, and those who needed a new IVF cycle had actually obtained the same implantation rates, similar actually. Sure. Um, if I can add to that, Paul, a couple of comments. One, the dropout rate is very much keeping with the dropout rate that has occurred in Germany, German studies and Scandinavian studies where the patients were young, good prognosis and had access to free care through the social health care system. So um, I, I don't know how many of those uh, would have been discouraged from trying again from a single cycle. Certainly it had to have been some, but I don't believe it was many. We don't really do, uh, if someone's got an abnormality, we correct it before their first cycle. We don't do a lot of adductive surgery. So I would imagine that number is extremely low. And, 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 I, and I'm smiling only because Dr. Young and I have been back and forth on this many times over the years, but he says that there's a reduction in receptivity in the second cycle. And I would say, we don't know that. Only reduction in sustained implantation rates. It may have been wholly on the Absolutely. Uh, because we do have less opportunity for selection. These are less morphologically ideal embryos because we didn't pick them first. I suspect it's a mix of both, if, if I had to give my honest guess. Uh, but of course, uh, that, that remains a topic for future uh, investigation. Yeah, so we, we, we assume that those 10% drop from the first one for the second and the third one uh, could be actually uh, due to morphology selection, but uh, as you see, the, the third one, which you still have a very complicated population, still have 60% chances of implantation and also more or less the same chances of live birth. So there is no increase in miscarriage uh, and there is no real in, uh, decrease in, in, in chances. So 
So Paul, can I make your question? Yes. Okay, so I'm curious concerning uh, the, the pregnancy rates per embryo transfer that you were showing. As you recently said, it comes from almost 69, something like that, to 60, and then 60 again. And I have a question that probably you or maybe Dr. Scott can answer, which regards, do you have any information about patients undergoing the fourth cycle? Because without PTPA analysis, is my understanding that the rates are decreasing the more transfer that you accumulate, but in this case, this seems to be very stable in the cycle. And this can point to more related embryo quality issues instead of endometrial issues. So the main question is, do you have any info about the expected pregnancy rates in the fourth cycle, if they stay the same levels? So regarding the fourth embryo transfer, I will leave Dr. Skull because my time in New Jersey was ended by, so I'm back in Paris and I cannot answer that question, but I'm sure Richard is going to be happy to. Um, we have done some follow-up on Paul, uh, Dr. Patea's data, um, which, which again uh, came out of a, an idea that Dom had that actually some years ago, it has just been really a, a fun a very fun data set. But the reality is we went back and looked at those group people who failed the third cycle. The number of transfers, I apologize for that exact number, but it was a little under 40. Many of those patients did have to do an additional cycle. So I, I want to qualify that. But within that group, um, the uh, initial, uh, the clinical pregnancy rate was uh, about 62%, and the ongoing rate was about 52 or 53%. So the loss risk did appear a little higher. But the overall rate, I would say, is plateaued still. Um, and so even with the fourth cycle, that drives the cumulative delivery rate up to 95 or 6 and the cumulative clinical rate up to 97 or 8, about 95 to 98. So um, the fourth cycle did well. And we don't really have fifth cycle uh, data today. But do you think this is just pointing that the embryo trouble is shown with PGPA and probably there's an underlying Endometrial factor that probably varies from cycle to cycle? I, I'm going to weigh in and then I'm definitely going to want everyone else's opinion, but I think for sure there's some people with endometrial receptivity disorders in here. And that impaired receptivity is definitely part of this story, no question. But the single greatest variable that changed between those cycles is that it's a different embryo. Because, yeah. well, it is a different endometrium, that, that variability is likely lesser. Uh, and so I don't think what you're seeing is the fact that uh, different embryos have different reproductive potentials, and in some people that's impaired, and you know, uh, you're just finding the, the right embryo. So I, I think there's likely to be a substantial component of both of these, but I wouldn't ignore the, just because we have a, a morphologically normal, or if you're doing time last, typically normal euploid blast, there's tons of other things wrong with those embryos uh, that we're just not identifying uh, reliably yet. I agree, I agree, but my point was in comparison with those non-PGDA cycles, where you can see that patients' chances uh, involve lower pregnancy rates per transfer as you accumulate periods. So it's not the same ratio in the first cycle, in the second, in the third, the fourth, and it, it, it drops down. But in this case, what is surprising for me is that, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but this is, I think, is a very interesting message, uh, what Dr. Scott just mentioned, because we 
we can use this extremely well with our patients. They, many, many times, I'm sure we all get a question from our patients, but doctor, if, if you're gonna do the same thing and you're gonna repeat the cycle of saying, you're gonna have the same outcome. Say, absolutely not, because you have a completely different embryo. Uh, the rest of the things are fine. Um, right. I have a, some questions coming from the audience uh, and, and these are mainly, I think, for Paul, because they, they're asking, why did you exclude donor data? Would you expect different outcome? Or maybe for Dr. Scott as well. And, and why not include a group with uh, time-lapse with no PETA? So about the donor, I mean, it, it, we wanted to have real IVF couples because if you include donor, then you can expect that the embryo will be just great and will just uh, hide out those who can have a real problem of infertility. Because we all know that in donor cycles, you have superior outcomes, uh, in mostly for those with re probably recurrent implantation failure due to embryo uh, uh, lack of competence. So we didn't want to select out and maybe hide those patients. We really wanted to address uh, uh, couples that have the possibility to obtain uh, uh, oocytes and spermatozoids in order to get an embryo. So we didn't we didn't want to bias our study with those donor egg cycles. I don't know if Richard agrees with me, but... Um, I certainly agree. We wanted to see the negative effect of both embryonic and in vitro factors. Uh, you know, obviously we didn't really distinguish them in the study, but we did want to see the cumulative effect. And for that, you, donors are not the ideal. What was the other question, Juan? I apologize. Um, they were asking about adding a group with time-lapse with no PETA, if this would be representative of uh, real-life data. Well, our experience is that uh, we, have, we have not had uh, seen significant improvements in implantation rates with time-lapse. Uh, I know others have different experiences, and I'm respectful of that, but, but we have not. And so we don't use it routinely, so we would have nowhere near enough data uh, from routine patients, routine clinical care to make that type of assessment. Uh, perhaps centers that, that do both well, and I think you would need to do both well. Uh, David Cram's data would suggest that from, uh, from China, uh, et cetera, um, could, could potentially answer that question for us in the future. It's still about identifying that you know, ideal embryo and that ideal endometrium, and uh, there's work to be done. And I'd like to ask a question to the panel. Um, <clears throat> what do you think of the concept of, of uh, I think this is Macklin's uh, speculation about the permissive endometrium or the restrictive endometrium. Do you think uh, this may make a difference? I might make a comment on this just for just a second. I think what Macron is saying is that the good embryo is actually uh, acting on the endometrium uh, and selecting changes occurring in the endometrium. In essence, all that we have seen in that study it's perfectly compatible with, with what uh, Nick is saying uh, in terms of uh, uh, receptive endometrium and uh, selective endometrium. If we were able to actually assess the endometrium on the day of the transfer, which one day we might do, then we might find some alteration that would be actually a specific reflector, if what Nick is saying is right, specific reflector of the quality of the embryo. I just want to add that, and then I Steve's comment, but, you know, I, I, I agree with Tom completely. This communication, uh, Paco Dominguez from our group has contributed to studies in this area. Diego Marin has worked on it. 
Uh, right now, it's really difficult to look at extracellular vesicles, look mechanistically at some of the factors that may be involved in the But those those technologies are going to improve, and we're going to get we're going to get better at evaluating those things. And then I think that's where we're going to open a huge door uh, that that may give you an integrated effect of, uh, of an embryo and the endometrium. But Dr. Young, what, what's your impression? Exactly what I was going to say, and and what Dom said that it's a conversation and, and you can have a lousy endometrium and a really good embryo and you might get pregnant at some reasonable rate. And you can have a lousy embryo and an excellent endometrium and you might get pregnant, although you probably lose it uh, at some reasonable rate. Uh, and so this is not a dichotomized thing. And if we're going to get to 90% in one cycle, we're going to have to pay attention to both separate factors and the combination. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm thinking also from the uh, pragmatic point of view, we are here identifying recurring implantation failure by deselecting patients that already got pregnant. Uh, how do you think we can put this uh, the other way around? How can we identify patients, that 5% of patients that will not make it in three uterine transfers? Is there any way we can identify or, or pre-select these this potential uh, difficult patients? I don't, I'm, I'm not sure we can do that, but we should try to find a way, but I'm, I'm honestly, I have uh, no clue how. I, I believe that the, the, the studies like Dr. Proteas and the work of Dr. Young and Dr. Ziegler and, and Nestor Bosch and many others are going to teach us because we're going to identify these subsets of patients. Then we're going to learn what's going on that makes for these patients to, to have lower implantation rates and recurrent failure. And then there'll be another opportunity to study to see, hey, if, if we if we study this prospectively in the general population, are there gonna to be too many false positives or is this finding gonna be specific enough to provide predictive values, which means we should screen everybody and we'll get faster to that 90% margin with Steve. So I think these are the kinds of studies you're gonna to need to really identify meaningful, impactful factors which are limiting outcomes. Then we can do the prospective studies on a broader population to see if the predictive values are there or if the false positives are, are too detrimental. Steve? Um, got nothing to add to that. Uh, I, I, you know, there's a lot of small studies like uh, Bruce Lessie has a nice one of BCL6 that, that we, we've worked together on that, that suggests you can predict at least in a subset of infertility patients uh, IVF success somewhat by looking at BCL6, but but that's very preliminary. There's a much larger study going on right now at Stanford to see if that's indeed true. Um, but I'm curious. So, uh, Dr. Cozzolino, was it is it true that in your uh, population that you looked at, there was a, those with severe recurrent implantation failure had about a 36% implantation rate. That's if that's true. If I read it correctly, that's much lower than Dr. Patea's uh, study, you know, and, and looking at those differences in implantation rate may, may lead us to some factors, right? Yes, was um, was lower. So I don't know if maybe um, in an our in our study we included the patient with the worst prognosis. So it should be a reason that we have a lower implantation rate. But also in the in the in the group of severe RAF, we we have not too much embryo transfer 
in the control study. So honestly, in we can have a, a good conclusion uh, for this group. But even in the PGTA treated ones, yeah, even yeah. in uh, you had quite a low implantation rate in comparison to Protea study, right? Yeah. Why? So, um, so you are meaning uh, why was lower in the for the PGTA? So maybe um, we can't exclude it. So that, that when we um, decided this study, the major the major idea that we have behind was that. Uh, Okay, let's try to divide for the number of the embryos and let's see to see to understand if uh, different tests could be useful for different situations. So we hypothesized that for patients that have uh, more embryos, more of five uh, embryo transferred failed, PGTA is not enough alone to um, improve the clinical outcome of this patient. But at the end, for the number of the embryo transfers that we have included, we can conclude this. So I don't know if Nico want to add something. Yeah, yeah, I would like to jump in. So I think the answer for, for Dr. Young is that uh, there's a big difference between the two studies. A Pitea study included patients up to three embryo transfers. We included patients from three failed embryo transfers. So populations are completely different. This is the main reason. Yes, but doesn't that then provide you with the basis for preliminarily for yeah. a definition of recurrent implantation failure? Those are the patients that are affected. Yeah, it yeah. takes multiple failures. And you've now identified a population which is mm -hmm. not as benefited by PGT. Exactly. Uh, as the population in protest. Uh, that's my question. Yeah, 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 you're right. Probably these are the more recalcitrant patients. So those that have failed multiple locations and, and probably the worst case. I might have to take exception to that. You can't compare those data to the, to the, the, to the New Jersey data and say that that definified that group. You'd have to compare it to the first three cycles in those exactly. Uh, to reach that conclusion. So actually those data cannot be compared that way. And I don't believe they yet, they, they might, they might if analysis. That's why I said preliminarily. But well, I would say you can't even do that analysis. I would say that's not a preliminary finding. It's well, not. Yeah, well, Richard, why, why, was it, why was implantation so much lower? Well, why is it, why is it different in all programs? Why, why is it different in all programs? So I think every, every Good question serve of its own control. And there are many answers to that. And we know yeah. some but not all of them, um, for sure. Um, and so I think you, again, you, uh, in these types of study, you want to hold as many variables constant as you can. And the nature of the laboratory, the transfers, the clinicians, the timing, the patient selection, all of those things should be held constant. So I, I would be very hesitant to compare data between studies. Uh, to reach too many conclusions one way or the other. You would have to look back within those same programs to look at their initial three cycles and their implantation rates to see if there's a difference. I would like to ask a question to Rich, if I may, uh, because I'm really curious about the answer. Uh, what the study has shown is that not just the implantation rates, but the failure rate remains constant for the for the euproid and the transfer. And uh, therefore, <clears throat> my question is, do you have any 
ID any speculation as to what mechanism would be responsible for the embryo not to implant. Uh, you might have looked at the preprint uh, by the school crafts group on um, epigenetic, possible epigenetic alteration of the universe. You want to speculate on that? I was so uh, interested in uh, knowing your thoughts. Well, I think one of the questions I saw in the, in the, in the Q&A uh, addressed some of those issues. Uh, and and it's, very, uh, it's very interesting. So I think subchromosomal defects, uh, and particularly in terms of segmental abnormalities, are going to be very important here. Are going to be very important here. The non-selection data, but we only screen about 5% of the genome when we do PGT accurately. And we're still finding a significant number of segmentals, and they have about a 50% reduction in implantation rates. Um, if we could screen more comprehensively, we'd likely find more, and it might be impactful. Those are all mites. I have no data. Please don't consider those evidence-based in any way. And similarly, I think you're going to find from Dr. Young, Dr. Lessie's work, others, uh, that some people are really going to have impaired endometrium, and still another group is going to have an impaired uh, communication crosstalk conversation that Dr. Young is talking about. So I think we're going to find all of those. But I, I still think, if I had to guess, that the biggest chunk is in the embryo. It's not mitochondrial DNA copy number. We know it's not that. It's not basic timing issues once you control for synchronizing with the window of implantation. It's going to be more complex than that. Uh, but it could be mitochondrial function. Uh, I think it's it it's, could be very, very important, which is not copies of, of mitochondria, but how they're performing. Uh, and I think segmentals, and I think all the work that, that Steve has done is other stating, uh, and we'll also find a way into this story. So who knows? That's why we're all still busy uh, doing our studies and answering questions. We might also make a comment on the type of treatment for transferring frozen embryos. I mean, you have used what we most of us have used the estradiol and progesterone cycle. As we all know, there are now discussions and, and questions about the value of the natural cycle transfer because in the natural cycle you have relaxing. But what I think we might emphasize and, and, and underscore here is that actually uh, there might be some differences in terms of uh, obstetrical outcome and in terms of preeclampsia, and that's a different topic altogether. But the estradiol and progesterone cycle is still giving an unsurpassed uh, receptivity uh, in terms of priming the endometrium. Do you agree, Rich? I would love Dr. Young's comment on that, but I, but I still do think that that's true, that we really haven't beat the gold standard. Um, Dr. Dr. Gerson Weiss will undoubtedly appreciate you mentioning uh, Relax, and I know you spent some time uh, with them in Newark, but uh, I, there are likely are factors there. I just don't know that we know what they are. Um, um, and they may be they may be important, but right for now anyway, the gold standard still remains estrogen and progesterone, timing the window in a in a conventional sense, um, because the other things really have not uh, consistently uh, been able to be demonstrated to be useful. Um, Dr. Young, I think it's important to underscore that for the for the people who actually are listening to this. Uh, uh, Dr. Young, what are your thoughts? Best I can tell, there are no data that show anything better than estrogen and progesterone. I think that's what Richard said. And um, however, there are some preclinical preclinical data, I guess I would say, that there is a difference 
and and relaxin, you know, apparently may be one of the culprits in the increased rate of preeclampsia uh, in uh, those kind of cycles in, in in estrogen progesterone cycles where you suppress completely the formation of corpus luteum. Um, and, and it's no doubt that the corpus luteum is making a bunch of hormones, and that they may have some modulatory role. But if we give enough estrogen and progesterone, we can, uh, in the vast majority of patients, um, uh, overcome any deficiency that we're not giving from the corpus luteum or those other factors are uh, simply there because of evolutionary uh, reasons and not for function, uh, which I hard to imagine, but it's possible. So, so I agree with both of you. I, I, um, however, uh, anecdotally, you know, it, the problem with anecdotal information in this area is that people do well in the next cycle as Dr. Pertea just demonstrated quite nicely. And so, you know, when I take a patient and, and put her on a modified natural cycle because we had troubles, uh, you know, and, and she does well, then she thinks I'm a genius. And then uh, I, I uh, get a big head and I feel really good and, uh, and everything's great. But um, and then I think, oh, my gosh, I am such a I'm going to put everybody on there. And and and, and that's a bad way of, of practicing, I think. Um, and, and so I have to agree with both of, of everyone has said that, that estrogen and progesterone is the standard and uh, we don't have any good evidence anything else is better in regards to uh, live birth. Thank you. Um, let me ask you a final question that could take us uh, another half an hour or so, but let's, let's try to be brief and just trying to identify where, where to put the balance in, in the embryo of the beach again. Um, I mean, the, the value of PDTA on, on embryo selection is undisputable for sure, but what about biochemicals? What about when you have a biochemical pregnancy? Maybe here there's a, a bigger role for the endometrium. Uh, what do you think? Steve, why don't you go first and I'll follow you this time. Uh, <laughs> um, I think we don't know what causes biochemicals. And so it's a, uh, whenever we don't know something, we, all, uh, we always like to say it's the endometrium, at least I do. Um, I, I, it, it, what I would say is that using PGTA, to my knowledge, has never shown a decrease in biochemical pregnancy rate. And thus, whatever it is we uh, is causing biochemicals is not related to whole chromosome defects, um, and um, and they're you know and so is it an embryo? Is it endometrium? Is it both? I don't know the answer, but but uh, it, it, Bruce has a handful of patients with BCL six overexpression and CERT one overexpression that suggest that those patients have an increased rate of biochemical pregnancy loss, but those are very small numbers, and I, I don't think we can take them to the clinic. I, I couldn't agree more with, with Dr. Young that. So we have many tens of thousands of transfers of data from PGTA over the years uh, between uh, the US and Spain. Uh, and I can tell you that the biochemical rate is not, is not impacted by PGTA. Uh, and in fact, even without PGTA, the biochemical rate doesn't change with age. It's the same at, at 25 and, and 43. So uh, you know, this is a different beast. This is a different problem. And it may be the endometrium. Um, and so I think that uh, very interestingly, uh, some data that, that's been coming out more recently over the last several years, the hyperglycosylated HCD data showing that it's abnormal from the beginning. Um, again, it doesn't necessarily resolve this issue of embryo versus endometrium, but it certainly shows you that something is broken early and it's not going to be as simple as aneuploid. So uh, uh, obviously we're losing 
eight to 10% of pregnancies if you look at all of infertility care to biochemical losses. So I sure hope Dr. Young figures it out quick and straightens this out because uh, this is a big this is a big burden medically. All right, so I think it's uh, time to finish. Maybe Andres will take over from here. Yes. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Juan. Thank you, everybody. This was awesome. Congratulations for this nice meeting. Very good. Thank you. Congratulations to the authors. Yeah, congratulations to the authors. It was great. Thank you for inviting us. Our pleasure. I I would personally like to thank Dr. Scott and Dr. Ziegler, Professor Ziegler, for the help that they provided to for this paper, uh, you know, inspiration is priceless. So, uh, and I hope that the, the paper will probably help everyone to try to do the same treatment again and again for those patients to uh, gain trust and uh, uh, eventually succeed. Thank you. Thank you so much to all of you for participating today. Thank you to all the audience for joining us. I know there were some questions that we couldn't get to, but um, that's the nature of, of time constraints. If you want to listen to our past journal clubs or know anybody who wasn't able to join in today, as you know, all of our journal clubs are available on our FertiliPod podcast, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and on our website as well. Thank you so much. See you next time. This has been another episode of FertiliPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions and all things reproductive medicine. See you next week.